Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back again to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. My name is Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm back with Yusip Reune. What's up? Hey, Tobias. All good here again, but... I do have a new mattress for, for my bed at home. So I think this is major news because I've been thinking about getting a new mattress for five years now. So it's, it's funny. Previous one I had, that was quite good. But when you sort of stop to think about it, you, you realize, okay, it's eight years old. It's quite tired already. So when you wake up in the morning, you feel like, well, it was okay, but I could have maybe slept better. So we thought about this with my wife for three years. Should we invest in a new one? What sort sort, sort should it be? And how much do we want to invest? And eventually we settled on a model. But the challenge for us is that we don't have the regular dimensions. We have a bit wider one. I think we like the space. Uh, So we have the new mattress. It's been two nights. My body battery on my Garmin um, watch is showing 100 every morning now. Very nice. So I don't have a new mattress, but I, I would like to get one because I, I agree with this. Sometimes uh, when our three-year-old comes crying at night because she had a bad dream or something like that, she goes into our bed. But then we're four people in the bed because we have the tiny one as well. Yeah. And I just don't fit in the bed because yeah. the, the three-year-old <laughs> is doing ninja kicks in her sleep. So I, yes. I kind of sneak into her room and, and go to sleep in her bed. But that's also not optimal. Waking up with not 100 on my body battery. I don't have a watch to tell me that, but I can feel it when I, you know, everything is kind of making noises in your body when you stand up. It's funny though, how you easily can make a decision to buy the latest Lamborghini uh, Lego piece, but a mattress, something that you use for between six to 10 hours every single day or night, you, you kind of draw you know, you don't make that decision as easily as something that you probably build once and never use again. <laughs> exactly. And and it's the same for us. Our three-year-old, not every night, but quite often sort of wanders to our bedroom looking for whatever and then crawls in the bed. And after 20 minutes, you just go, nah, I'm, I'll go to his bed now. It's it's not as good though. Obviously, it's 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 designed for somebody much smaller, but I sleep fairly well there as well. So if uh, I become disappointed with the new mattress, <laughs> I can always confiscate the one from my three-year-old and say, this is mine now. That's how it is. I mean, the TLDR on that one is if you don't enjoy getting kicked in the head in your sleep, you know, it's okay to sleep on a slightly less quality mattress. Exactly. So what have you been up to lately? So for me... I actually was looking a bit on on the tech stack because I, I've been having a cold for a bit. So I, I couldn't really do any physical activities. So I've been looking a bit at the uh, Azure certifications and exams available. And there's a couple of new ones that's interesting. And I'm particularly looking in the security engineer space. And for Microsoft, you have the AZ500, which is the one that I took in 2019 for um, and, yeah, Azure security, if you will. Then there's the MS500, which I'm looking at, which is the Microsoft 365 security. But then there's two new ones, SC200, which is Security Operations Analysts Associate. 
And then there's SC400, which is Information Protection Administrator Associate. So there are these two new uh, you know, security-related exams. And I, I think that this shows Microsoft's commitment to you know, empowering everyone to, to learn these things and ramp up on these things. So I took a look at Microsoft Learn. And, and if you also attended, albeit virtual, the uh, Ignite conference, there's this challenge they have where you can join the challenge and if you do all these Microsoft Learn modules to learn one of these topics, you get a free exam voucher so you can actually do the real exam later. So if you haven't signed up for that, there's still time. I don't know for how long, but it's a couple of weeks more. Take a look at that. Um, so I'm, I'm currently going through all of these uh, exams that I haven't taken yet, and specifically these SC200 and SC400, the new in the information security and security space around Azure. Um, so yeah, I mean... I've been down with a cold for a long time now. So there's nothing else I can do other than, you know, browse Netflix or, you know, do something on my tablet. But Netflix, I watched everything on Netflix, right? Yeah. And then when I'm not doing that, my family needed me. So in the nighttime, I, I took some time to check these out. So I, if you're in that space, check it out. They're, they're very interesting. And the free material from Microsoft Learn is really good. We, we have to revisit this same topic later on when you're done with the SC200, the SC400. I am up for renewal on the AZ500, but you can only renew those uh, six months ahead of time before they expire. So 14 days from now, it's my time to renew the AZ500. But once you're done with the SC1s, let us know and, and let's talk more about those in a different episode. So now I have to take them. Wow, yes, pressure. Yes, both. <laughs> and you have to pass them as well. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, so today, let's talk about security with Microsoft Teams. So somebody listening in on this going, all righty, so you guys are doing an Azure podcast, but now we're talking about Teams. Per perhaps, Toby, you want to sort of, sort of walk us in, why are we talking about security with Microsoft Teams? Well, number one is security is important you know, regardless of what the technology is and what the platform is. Number two is, you know, a big chunk of teams is running on Azure. And number three is a lot of the security considerations that you can do with teams are actually done in Azure. And these are things that, you know, for, for me, who's uh, in charge of operations and daily operations and cloud operations and, you know, security and anything that we do in our cloud, I need to keep my eyes on this and I need to understand it. So I kind of wanted to break that down into uh, something comprehensible for where you can start. Because a lot of organizations, they kind of rolled out Microsoft Teams in the last year. Perhaps that decision was a great one, but perhaps not as much planning went into that as you would have wished because of the pandemic, everyone started working from home. And this kind of made all organizations worldwide roll out some kind of collaboration tool for internal co collaboration. A lot of organizations use Microsoft Teams. Um, and some organizations, they will have 100% control of everything that goes on. Others just kind of tick the box and said, let's roll it out. And then, you know, it kind of grows and you have no idea how, you know, the, the teams and channel pro proliferation happens and things are just multiplying and it's very hard to kind of govern everything that goes on. So when we talk about security in Teams, there's a couple of these things we can control on the Azure side. And then, of course, in the Microsoft 365 Compliance Center, which kind of ties into that. 
some things you can configure in multiple areas. But in the end, it's about not just security from attackers, if you will, but also data security from within. Accidental sharing of files, accidentally sharing content information about something, or accidentally sharing information from your you know, R&D project with someone else in your organization or even someone outside of the organization. These things happen, and they happen a lot. Uh, so it's not always the, the malicious intent that someone was hacking something, but it's also about the accidents that happen every single day and how we can prevent them. So that's kind of the angle I'm coming from. That's kind of the things I want to take a look at. Uh, and some of those things touches on Azure. So that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it. That's fair enough. And I feel that teams being probably the, the most prominent, the, the, the most visible productivity tool now from Microsoft. It, it, it makes sense that we also think a bit more about security with teams now. Uh, should we start with the, with the very basics? So somebody listening on this going, all right, if you're perhaps using teams or you're planning to use teams, what should I check first? What should I configure or think about first when it comes to security and teams? What would you start with? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> I, I think we can spare like four hours for this episode. Let's go. <laughs> no, I, I think we can break it down quite easily. And, and before I answer the, that question, which is a really good question, like where do I start? There's usually three areas that I talk about, and it's securing the collaboration experience, which is what you as an end user can see, like you go into a meeting and you, you have channels and you have chats and you have messages and you have things going on that you can actually see in the Teams client. That's one, the collaboration experience. The other thing is compliance and how do you follow regulations? And the other one is security or the third one is security. Uh, so let's actually start there because this is where we do most of the things in Azure. Uh, but again, in order to, to secure Microsoft Teams, you can start with security and, and not just the compliance and, and collaboration experience. And the absolutely first thing you should do if you have not done it is of course, enable MFA or multi-factor authentication. This is something you also do on the Azure side. So if, if you do that for your organization, uh, you know, then this is automatically done for anyone who signs into Microsoft Teams as well. If you use something called security defaults, uh, then you already have MFA, it's already enabled, and that also blocks legacy authentication. If you don't have security defaults, and, and if you're an AAD admin, you will understand whether you, or you will know whether you have that or not. Uh, if you don't have that, then ensure you have conditional access for your AAD and then enforce it this way. So that's the, like the go-to thing. Whenever you have an organization that you're helping rolling this out, the absolutely, absolutely first thing, which is very easy to check is, do I have MFA or multi-factor authentication enabled? And if not, how can we get there? You know, how do we roll that out? Because it will have an impact on users when you roll it out. Because if you just sign in with a username and password, and then all of a sudden you have a requirement on a mobile device or you know, some kind of two-factor authentication device, you know, that, that is complexity that not all, all users are familiar with. So this is something to think about, but most importantly, that's step number one, verify whether you have this or not. And this is, this is an interesting bit that the whole MFA thing, you can often see this sort of advice that enable and enforce MFA. And, and in, in a way it's super easy to state that, okay, we get more secure by doing X, but then it sort of opens down the road. It opens sort of different 
things to consider with MFA. Already, so should we think about uh, single sign-on? Should we think about seamless single sign-on? What if we have federated identities? What if we have devices that are managed? Should we still require MFA from users who have already successfully authenticated on their Windows 10 in a secure location in a secure network? Do we require MFA from them or should they get a bypass? So. I, I like the fact that Microsoft often sort of sort of dumps down that this is what you need to do. But perhaps the lesson that I've learned over the past couple of years has been that the simple things on paper often require further design and planning as they affect your users. Yeah, very much so. And, and especially with MFA, and, and like you mentioned, um, as a prime example here, uh, while this was not directly related to Microsoft Teams, we did a, a big rollout. It's a couple of years back. A company, in, you know, in industrial, there's hundreds of thousands of, of units and, and users. Rolling out MFA is important. But if you don't use conditional access, if you kind of just enforce it everywhere, it's going to, that is not going to work, you know, because this is a complex environment. It's a complex organization. And a lot of the computers are shared computers in a, a production facility you know, where the, where the computer is not even locked because the people there, um, you know, they, they work in the production line. They are not Teams users. They are not Azure AAD experts or anything else. They just sign in in the morning, enter some data into their platform, you know, whatever system they have, and that's it. So with conditional access policies, you can achieve that. And you can say that these types of machines in these locations, you know, using these IP ranges or however the network is, connected are exempt from using MFA, but they are also super restricted in what they can access, right? So they don't get access to the network shares if you have any, they don't get access to the default groups in your AD. they don't get access to the whatever you have in Teams these days. Uh, you know, they, they get put in instead in with a policy in a restricted group saying that this is a high risk user account, which means it get low access into the actual organizational data. So less transparency for anyone signing in with those accounts, but it's mainly because it's unmonitored computers. Anyone can pretty much walk past them and start entering data, right? So there's, of course, a lot of considerations. And I think we could actually do just an episode on, on rolling out MFA or conditional access because I have a lot of examples of when this went really well, but also a lot of examples when you kind of realized after, after the fact that the organization tried to roll this out, but didn't think of a couple of things and those few things became blockers for actually doing it at all. So anyway, MFA, take a look at it. It's uh, it's important. So the we are we are now uh, we've done MFA. We touched briefly on conditional access. Uh, so perhaps I, I would say these two are are the cornerstone in, in just getting secure. What next? Uh, I have MFA enabled. I'm happy with this. What should I do next? So when you have that, that means you can breathe, you know, just a few seconds before you jump onto the next thing. Um, but before you start configuring anything else, I would actually recommend to check out the security framework for Microsoft Teams, which is uh, on Microsoft Docs. And we will put this in the show notes as well. Um, and they're doing a great job in providing updated information about their security posture and, and how they develop securely using the Microsoft Security Development Lifecycle or um, SDL and more things like that, and how that kind of contributes to a secure uh, experience. 
So in that security framework for Microsoft Teams, there's a lot of details on how they do things and what kind of standards they follow and, and things like that, which is important to understand. So if you do have that time, just read that. The link will follow in the show notes. Uh, but after you've set up um, conditional access and you have your MFA, another thing that I really like is uh, to take a look at DLP or data loss prevention. And again, this is on the Azure side uh, or Microsoft 365 side. You can set this up, for example, from the 365 Compliance Center. Uh, and then you can enable DLP for Microsoft Teams. And then you can say, just like you could, could in the past do and you, that you already can do, set up DLP for Exchange, SharePoint, OneDrive. You can also do for Teams chat and channel messages. Uh, so specifically, I think you can do this for Teams channel messages, Teams chat messages, and Teams private channel messages. And what it does uh, is pretty much telling you that um, with Microsoft Teams chat and channel messages, uh, you can protect the data in your organization and define these policies that prevent users from sharing sensitive information. So if you have classified something as sensitive information and then you start monitor this for Microsoft Teams, Teams will tell you that you know, due to a policy, this is not something that you can share. Uh, so you can now start using DLP to monitor what goes on in Teams as well. Um, and you know the TLDR for that is you make sure that users don't share sensitive information in chat and channels, emails or documents if you use OneDrive and Exchange and stuff like this. Uh, so you don't share stuff with the wrong people. And DLT, uh, DLP for Teams can, for example, prevent sensitive information from then being shared in these areas, both internally and externally, depending on how you kind of define these policies. But there is a gotcha with this. And DLP for Teams is only supported when the user has a mailbox that is in Exchange Online, because some of the things happening on the Exchange side. Uh, so DLP, I think, is an important thing to take a look at. Again, we could do a full episode on the intricate details. I'm trying to be as brief as I can to condense it down only to you need to have it, and this is why. If you want to do a longer episode on that, we can, of course, uh, do that as well. I remember years ago when DLP became available, um, it was for email and SharePoint content, I think, in the cloud. And I was fiddling with the settings and I just on a whim, I decided, okay, let's let's try it. Let's deny anybody uh, storing or sending uh, credit card details and, and finish passport details anywhere. And I forgot about that rule because I figured, yeah, nobody needs this, but I, I'll just let it let it sit there. Two months later, somebody I, I had in the company emailed me, hey, you see, I'm trying to email somebody outside the company, but it's rejected for some reason. Okay, let's have a look at the exchange logs. So you're trying to send your credit card details in plain text over email to this third party. Why exactly? Yeah, they said they couldn't process my credit card. So they asked me to send the details. And <laughs> this is why you have DLP. Point in case, that's yes. why you have DLP, yes. Uh, so the next thing that I would say after this is uh, ATP or advanced threat protection. Again, something you can just enable. And, and you know, if you go to Microsoft 365, uh, you have uh, the Security and Compliance Center. And there, in the global settings, you can say, turn on Defender for Office 365 for SharePoint, OneDrive, and Microsoft Teams. And then you can also say, turn on Save Documents for Office Clients. Um, which is then only available in Microsoft 365 E5, I think, or if you have 
uh, Office 365 or Microsoft 365 E5 security licenses. Uh, then you can enable that one, which is the safe, safe documents. Um, those are pretty easy to do. You switch a couple of uh, checkboxes and that's it. You just say, turn this thing on, turn this thing on, and that's it. Um, so I don't see a valid reason why you wouldn't want to use that because this is just enhanced security. So Microsoft Defender for Office 365, ATP for SharePoint, OneDrive and Microsoft Teams, um, and you know generally security, security in Microsoft Teams by just enabling these checkboxes or these radio buttons is, or toggle switches, I think you call them, is something you should definitely take a look at. One, one of the challenges with, with many of the features we've mentioned already is especially for larger enterprises, they have to be certain what sort of licensing is required. And it's going to be super complex. They might have external guests. And if they enable conditional access, what sort of licensing is required? Does it affect the guest users? Do we need to purchase something for them? Are they mapped to our existing licenses? What's the ratio? So you often have to dig a lot of information on this. But then in the end, the actual task there, the technical task on enabling something like this is, as you said, a flip. Okay, we're done. But we spent three weeks figuring out if we can do this flip or not. And that, that's really a lot of the work for all of these things. It's research and understanding what the implications will be. Um, like I think we talked in one episode about Azure policy and what happens if you roll it out and you have this kind of what if flag and you also can... Uh, do an audit on policies to see what happens. And then you can kind of gather the insights of what will happen when I actually enable it to understand whether you can or not, or you need to work more on that. Same thing goes for this, you know, in, especially in large organization and enterprises. You know, when I say you just toggle the switch, you know, that's how you technically turn the feature on. But like you mentioned, if, if your license game is not on par with whatever is required, then, you know, that's going to require more work. So all of these things require more work if it's a larger organization. And hopefully the ones listening in, working with the big customers, or if you are that big customer, um, you have an understanding of you know, what kind of licenses you have. And of course, the implications of enabling such a feature. But Microsoft Docs is also really good at explaining this nowadays. I think most of the things I look at from the Docs perspective from Microsoft, they always mention this requires these features. It also requires this license. And when you roll it out, think about these things. They will not cover everything, but it's a lot better than it used to be many years ago. Indeed. So a couple of years ago, we had something on Azure. I think it was called Azure App Discovery. And at the time, it was this small agent you would, you would drop on your user's workstations and it would inspect the traffic to figure out what sort of shadow IT solutions the users are using. But then it sort of evolved into Microsoft Cloud App Security, the MCAS. Does MCAS have any role in this? Because I feel it's, it's part of M365, but in MCAS, there's a lot of Azure angles as well. Yeah, it plays a pretty big part, especially for securing Microsoft Teams. And so using Microsoft Cloud App Security uh, is just another great way to do risk assessment for apps in your 365 environment. And you can use Cloud App Security to uh, you know, discover apps you didn't know that you had. You can proactively uh, kind of identify risky and non-compliant and trending apps and you know, see what people are using and 
what kind of permissions those apps are requiring. And then you can kind of understand how these things uh, tie together. So uh, with cloud app security, um, you, you should, con for example, consider configuring um, app discovery, like you mentioned, and you can find these trending non-compliant or risky apps. Uh, you can also monitor OAuth consent from users. So you can manage the OAuth apps that are authorized by users in the organization. And this enables you to stay informed uh, kind of what permissions have been granted to various apps, including by admins. So you can get like a list of things that users or admins consented to. And again, this is important for your overall risk posture and security posture. You can make use of Defender for endpoints to discover shadow IT. And because you mentioned shadow IT, this is you know something that's becoming more and more of a you know, on the radar, I wouldn't say more and more of a threat. It's been there for a long time, but more people working uh, from home and some people working from their own devices, not even a corporate owned device that may or may not be enrolled into Intune, you know, that becomes a problem because nobody has control of the device or knows what else is on that device, which can access corporate data. Um, so using uh, Defender for Endpoints is really good if you can roll it out with Intune and you can kind of get your devices enrolled into that, you know, you will get um, a better, you will get the bigger picture painted more easily, if you will. Um, you can tag apps and you have file policies and protected and confidential data. So with a file policy, we can, for example, protect data classified as confidential, ensuring uh, that this is not being shared with external users. And ultimately, this kind of helps us ensure that the confidential data doesn't actually leave the organization. So there's a bunch of things we can do. And all these things are kind of part of the uh, cloud app security. So we can do a lot around that. And a lot of users in Teams, when they have installed an add-in, that's a separate point with Microsoft Teams as well. You can control which add-ins or extensions or apps you can install and how they can be installed. But Imagine you just rolled out Microsoft Teams and people start installing apps that they like and they start consenting to apps with their own user account and maybe one of those user account have a lot of access in your organization. All of a sudden, you know, you're giving third-party apps access to a lot of data that you did not know that you gave them access to, which is, again, where cloud app security comes into play because then you can kind of filter and say, show me all risky apps show me all the apps that require these or that, those permissions and you know, can start drilling into them to understand what they are. And the reason I'm also talking about this related to Microsoft Teams is um, you know, in a lot of organizations, I see that people, you know, owners of uh, groups and owners of channels and you know, people who have the permissions in that tenant to dis um, deploy and install apps, they will. Right? And they will figure things out. They will try to get things working. And again, there's never or very seldom any malicious attempt in doing so. They just see that this app will help me you know, automatically plan these things. Cool, let's use it. When you click it, the app is going to say, I'm going to need access to read all your directory data and all your groups. And I'm going to need to write to all the groups you have permissions to as well. People just click allow or okay, you know, that's, let's approve it. That's the end of it. And then you know, six months later, you kind of forgot that you ever did that, but the apps still have access to your organization and your data, and you don't think about that. So this is where Cloud App Security is a really strong player in trying to understand what bits and pieces, um, you know, these apps can access and if they are doing that still. So, so let's recap a bit. Uh, we began with MFA and conditional access. I feel those two 
often go together, even if, if with conditional access, you can do a lot of other things as well. And then DLP and ATP, safe links for teams, and cloud app security, which is probably the biggest, biggest significant separate service for that. So this is a lot of services and all help you in securing teams. And this is reminding me of, of this uh, website. It's called msportals.io. Somebody took the effort to list all the management portals Microsoft has in the cloud. And I think it's about 125 different portals. And just with these six or seven different services that we've been discussing now, I, I think we have seven or eight different portals that we actually need to use to configure all, all, all sorts of different things here. So again, when you start with the whole securing approach, perhaps the actual task is, is fairly quick, but planning and designing for that and then figuring out if, if something isn't working anymore, that takes a lot longer, but perhaps this is the price you pay in securing things. Yeah, and, and this is always the case. It's similar to when you build a product, right? And uh, you can build a super cool product and roll it out to all the users. But if nobody actually uses it, it doesn't make any sense. Same thing here. If you don't plan the work ahead with all of these changes, it's going to fail. And that's not, it might fail. That is, it's going to fail. If you're an enterprise, you're a large organization and you just hit the button and you have no idea what's going to happen based on that, you know, things will fail which is why things like with conditional access, when you enable that, you can kind of first audit and see what will happen if I enable this conditional access thing. And then you can kind of do the research to see what the implications will be and then understand uh, how you can make a plan to roll this out worldwide to your organization. But as with everything, you can also start small. So it's better to start somewhere than not to start at all. And that might be that you require MFA for all your global admin accounts, you know, uh, just be prolific about that. You need MFA for global admins. There's no way around it. And then maybe you have a, a couple of different groups in the organization that, you know, can access more sensitive data, enable it there as well. But then maybe you have another 50,000 users where you have not enabled it yet because you haven't figured out how to roll that out, but that's okay. You will get there. Just start somewhere which again is better than not starting at all. Indeed, um, I, I think we exhausted the, the core security config options on securing teams. What next? So the things we just walked through, you did a good recap there. It's like from the security angle, things you can easily configure in the different security centers and compliance centers and, and the Azure portal and stuff like that. Another important thing is compliance. And you know that has to do with data security, and, but also data regulations and all things like that. So you have things like communication compliance, data retention, data location, multi-geo, e-discovery, auditing user activities, and a bunch more. And there's a couple of things that I think is important to, uh, to talk about, and they don't have to be super complex, complex. But one thing is, for example, data retention like email documents, uh, Skype and Teams conversations, all these things get stored somewhere. And, and the users, they generate a lot of content every single day. And you kind of want to control uh, by setting up retention policies where you want to uh, 
draw the line. You know, how, so with data retention, how long do you want to save the data and what type of data do you want to save and for how long? And specifically with Teams, you can do this with Teams chat messages and Teams channel messages. Because in a lot of organizations, it doesn't make sense to, to save all you know, chat messages and channel messages that are nine years old or just take a number, even three months, even you know, differs, of course, depending on the organization. So an important part of information governance and also information security is that you can uh, make use of data retention so with that feature, uh, you can more effectively uh, manage the information that you have in the organization. So not a direct security feature, but it's about information security in the end and, and information governance. So you can go to the uh, Microsoft 365 Compliance Center, and there you have configuration for policies and something called information governance. And from there, you can go to retention and say new retention policy and define whatever you want. Um, and it's important to remember uh, that unfortunately retention labels is currently not supported by teams, uh, but ret data retention policies are. So uh, data retention policies for teams chat messages and channel messages. Um, and the other thing that usually comes up and we've had this question a lot uh, when I talk to customers is where do you host my data? Like you access data, you do something, where is it stored? And the same thing goes with Microsoft Teams. When you roll it out, where's my data? Uh, so it's important to understand the data location and sovereignty so you know where that data is. Um, and you can go again uh, to the 365 Admin Center, and there you can discover the Microsoft 365 data locations. Uh, and you can see that for Exchange, SharePoint, Sky for Business, or Microsoft Teams. In my case, it says data at rest in the European Union. So that means I have you know, my data on this side of the pond, if your organization resides somewhere else, it will say something else, depending on where you deployed your, your tenant. Uh, so that's, again, not about security features, but more compliance and understanding where the data is and data security. Because depending on the laws you need to follow, both in the organization and the regulatory compliance you need to abide by, again, in your organization and, and the countries. Uh, that you operate in, you know, this is something you need to understand. Where is my data going? And then, of course, with the retention policies, how long can I save the data? Um, and another thing related to uh, compliance that comes to mind is something they announced at Microsoft Ignite. Um, they announced they're rolling out support for multi-geo capabilities. And uh, for Microsoft Teams, you now have uh, Microsoft Teams multi-geo support. So you can have multiple regions for your team's deployment, uh, which is cool. So with the Microsoft 365 multi-geo support, you can control where the data is located and specify data centers for persistence of the information, right? So that kind of ties into what I just said about uh, data sovereignty and where the data is and, and stuff like that. Now you have some control over where to put data for your different you know, multi-geo locations, which again is, not a security feature, you just toggle on or off, but something you need to, to understand, especially if you work with information security in the bigger picture in your organization, or if you help customers kind of roll Microsoft Teams out, this is important. Um, so yeah, from the top of my head, those are the, uh, the things. And then you have stuff like e-discovery. You know, again, this is uh, something we could probably do part one, part two, part three, 
uh, you know, in different episodes because it's such a big thing to talk about. Um, so I'm not going to dive too deep into that. Uh, but with electronic discovery or e-discovery, we get these powerful tools to identify information that we can use, for example, as evidence in legal cases or due diligence processes and more. Um, or if you know things have happened inside of your tenant that you think is from malicious uh, actors, you know things being shared or whatever it is, there might be a use case for e-discovery to help you with that. Most of the time, though, it's like legal holds and, and things like that that I see it being used for. Um, so you have like content search and core e-discovery and then advanced e-discovery. Again, we're not kind of diving to them too deep here, uh, but you can now enable this for Microsoft Teams uh, as well. So again, we'll put the link in the show note to that because even scratching the surface of that will be an entire episode. And I don't think we have that time. So if, if someone is still listening to me ranting about this, uh, there might be another episode coming where we might bring in a guest to talk about that. If that guest is you, uh, ping us on Twitter and we'll set that up. On the, on the multi-geo, uh, I recall when that initially became available on SharePoint Online. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think it was fairly complex to set up, meaning that you run this PowerShell and you do this and you do that. And then it required a minimum... Uh, amount of seats, five thousand or whatever it was at the time. So, so often these uh, nice additional features, especially on compliance, I see that they they might not be designed for small companies. They are more designed for larger companies who really have this need and requirement. And smaller companies often just have to do with whatever is already built into the platform. Yep. And I mean, a lot of these features are also enterprise features. And like you mentioned before, it depends on the licensing. Uh, Some capabilities that we take a look at will require the E5 license and not everyone will have that. And so again, it's wildly, wildly different. Something you should take a look at when coming both to security and data compliance or compliance in general is auditing user activity from, uh, let me see here. I think this is from the Microsoft 365 Compliance Center again. Um, You can go to uh, solutions and audit, and then you can audit different activities that that are happening. And why is this important? Well, because you can, it's not just about auditing users and what they do, but it's also what has happened. Like someone created a team and deleted a team. Okay, maybe that's important, maybe not. You can make that decision, but you can see someone added a connector removed a connector or updated a connector because all of a sudden you realize, well, a connector might be something that sends data out of my organization somewhere. That is something I might want to keep my eyes on. And you can do that with audit logs. Um, and these are, of course, built into uh, Microsoft 365 Compliance Center. So again, go there, go to solutions, audit, and then create your queries from there. Um, you know, And you have someone installed an app, upgraded an app, uninstalled an app, published an app, updated an app, deleted an app, uh, deleted all organization apps, uh, which of course is an event I hope I don't see too often. Um, You know, so you can audit all kinds of different things, but some of the ones I just mentioned are perhaps the more important one or the more interesting one when it comes to compliance, but more, you know, more security aspects where you want to see that someone installed a connector. Well, why did they do that? And what is this connector and where is it sending data? because maybe that's what I want to do. Or someone added a bot to the team. And maybe this bot 
have permission to read everything in that channel uh, that, that it's part of, and maybe it's sending all that data somewhere. And if you don't know about that, then you will never know about that. So this is one way to stay one step ahead. And, and if somebody listening in on this is thinking that, okay, so why do I need so many different services and portals and settings and whatnot? Well, have a look at Exchange Online Admin Center. The amount of links you have in there when you try to cram everything into one product, it, it just didn't work. And, and that's perhaps one of the reasons that when a new need arises, okay, we need to fix or tackle this security issue. It often turns out that there's going to be a new functionality in, in an existing service as opposed to putting everything in the same service, trying to uh, manage all different needs that the user base might have. So I, I think I've scratched the surface uh, of some of the things that you can take a look at to kind of start securing the experiences with Microsoft Teams. And especially if you have, you know, in the last year now rolled out Microsoft Teams as a result of more people working from home and things like that, and kind of were in a rush, this is a good uh, time, you know, as good as time as any, if you haven't already, to start taking a look at how you can lock that experience down. Uh, so we will put the link in the show notes to uh, one of those blog posts that I wrote about it, where you have an overview of all these things we just talked about and a bunch more. So you can just go through them one by one and see, did I do this? Yes. Did I do that? No. Okay, let's take a look. So I provide all the links also to the official Microsoft Docs. So you can go and take a look there. So I think from the top of my head, you know, if we're going to stay within one episode uh, for this, I think we have to draw the line there. You have other questions around around this that comes to mind with security and teams? I think we've, we've sort of exhausted my imagination here on all things securing Microsoft Teams. And it's an interesting topic, though. So perhaps we need to sort of revisit this, let's say, 20 episodes from now to see, has anything changed? Is it still the same? Are we seeing a shift in, in customers or or in the community on not using something and, and embracing some other features perhaps that we listed here. Yeah, makes sense. And then we have one final thing that we introduced a couple of shows ago, which is the unexpected question or the weird question. Today, I have a question for you in this episode. And that is, if you had the entire world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? So I'm imagining that I would, I would have my voice heard in everybody else's heads for 30 seconds. Yeah, everyone in the world will, will oh. hear and understand you. So you can speak Finnish yeah. if you want. That's okay. Everyone will understand. But you have a message scope of about 30 seconds. And you can say whatever you want. What would you say? What I would say is do not eat broccoli. Nobody likes that. Instead eat chocolate chip cookies. Also, you have the rest of the day off from school and work. <laughs> nice. That's <laughs> that a very important be, message indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and and this, this springs from the fact that we've been trying to introduce more vegetables for the kids, but also for me. And, and we always, uh, every dinner for a week, we, we have this, this one new ingredient and everybody eats that too. And I still don't like broccoli after two weeks. Well, there you go. 
Do you hear that, rest of the world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have the rest of the day off. <laughs> and that's the end of this announcement to the world. Yes, uh, this was fun. Again, thank you for joining us and until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.